Hello and welcome to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moeed Amin. The goal of this show is very simply to help people improve their skills and the art of persuasion and sales. So whether you're in a sales profession or not in a sales profession, quite frankly, persuasion is a skill that everyone has to get really good at. I think it was Bill Clinton that said, the bigger the dream or the bigger the vision, the more people you're going to have with you. So you need to be able to convince someone why they need to listen to what you have to say, why it's important for them, and why they need to come on board with you. So in this show, we're going to be talking about a lot more than just a conventional sales approach, although we do cover that in a lot of detail. But we're going to be talking about everything to do with the person that you need to become. And that's where growth comes in. It's not about the skills you acquire, but it's about the person you become. So we've had guests on the show who are experts in um, human behavior, body language, you know, even had someone on functional medicine, personal branding, you name it. Um, so one of the things that is uh, really developing in the sales world is the idea, well, not the idea, the fact that, you know, buying behavior has changed dramatically. And, uh, you know, forget changing in the last two years, you know, only in the last month, buyer behaviors will change a lot. And here in the UK, that has happened quite a lot because of the macroeconomic environment. So I'm pleased uh, to have this next guest on my show today. He's considered one of the foremost experts when it comes to sales and customer experience. He's co-authored three best-selling books that have sold uh, almost a million copies worldwide. And he's just published his fourth book, The Jolt Effect. Uh, he's also a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, having um, written about 20 articles for them. He was the former chief product and research officer for Tether, which was an AI and machine learning business, and he's now the founding partner of DCM Insights. Um, he's also a well-known speaker, highly sought after actually, speaker and advisor to management companies or management teams, apologies, in some of the most well-known companies around the world, including Fortune 500 companies. So please help me welcome someone who managed to do, manages to do all of this whilst being a father of four children, Mr. Matt Dixon. Matt, welcome to the show. Moeed, great to be with you again. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, uh, well, I should have said welcome back to the show. And, and for <laughs> yeah, all those... Yeah. For all those that are listening or watching to this, just a little background, actually, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of Matt being one of my mentors. In fact, we worked together uh, at CEB, which has now been acquired by Gartner, um, where I was, the com I was a commercial director and we were quite closely involved in, in some areas in sales. But in particular, you were mentoring me in terms of my career growth. And Matt, you've also been on the show before where we talked about not just Challenger, but what a Challenger mean for the recession or yes. the anticipated recession back in 2020 and everything that was going on there. So to have you on the show to, to um, talk about your latest book is, is great. And just to give my perspective, which I think might be important for people is, you know, I, I read the book, I got an advanced copy, which was fantastic. And I, I really kind of tore through the book as fast as possible because I was really interested in it. And some of the stuff that you talk about there, I found it incredibly refreshing. And, and the reason why I, I did is because those who know me know that I'm all about extensive research from the neuroscience and the behavioral psychology perspective of the buyer. And I think there's too, too few research and, and advice out there from that perspective. And your book covers that quite in quite a bit of detail, as well as the research you've done with, what is it, almost more than 2 million uh, sales yeah. conversations? 
Yeah, two and a half million uh, recorded sales conversations. But uh, but you know we'll and we'll talk more about this, uh, Moid. But I think the some of the findings, as you know now, are, are pretty surprising. And we actually had to go back to the the neuroscience, the social science, the behavioral economics to actually try to explain why the findings came out of the model the way they did. So uh, it was a very much a learning journey for us as well. Uh, we figured we we eventually figured out what talented gifted salespeople like you already knew <laughs> but it was but it was uh it was a learning journey for us as researchers yeah i'd love to dig into what the surprises sure. were but let me let me ask one question first before that yeah, which yeah. is what motivated you to seek out new answers when it comes to b2b sales uh, i would say i think the short version is that perhaps i'm a glutton for punishment but i think the um <laughs> i think the more maybe the the um the better version would be this is that you know i think as you know, and for your listeners who are familiar with the previous research, uh, the challenger sale is really a story about how do we sell to information-empowered customers? What do you do in a world where the customer can learn on their own? They can make up their own mind about what they should be doing as a business. Um, they, sh they can make up their own mind about who you are and what you can do for them. They can make up their own mind about how you compare to your competitors. And they can even figure out what about how much should they pay for your solution and then they force you to compete on price. So what do the best salespeople do in that world? Well, what they do is they challenge the customer's thinking. We, we wrote a follow-on book uh, called The Challenger Customers, you know, uh, that came out in 2015. Challenger Sale came out in 2011. A few years later, we wrote a, a sequel, if you will, which dealt with a different problem, which is, look, if we come and we challenge the customer's thinking with new ideas and we teach them about new ways to make money or save money and mitigate, mitigate risk, in many respects, it creates a new problem, which is the problem of building consensus, right? Um, especially if this is not something the customer knows they have a need for. And now you've got to forge consensus across a broad and often dysfunctional buying committee. And, and you and I both know this very well, and you know this even better than I do, having been a commercial director and a leader for many years in, in sales, is that groups, buying groups left to their own devices will agree on very little. Um, and they will agree on the lowest common denominator. Those are the easy things to agree to. But they typically won't agree on a big, audacious, kind of um, uh, bold move forward. And so we wrote a book about what do challengers do to find the right stakeholder to who can help them forge that consensus? How does that dynamic play out? So that was all in the book called The Challenger Customer. That was now, again, 2015. And um, what uh, I, I think we were tracking, there, there's probably a two-part thing. I think one, we were tracking an emerging problem, which was this problem of uh, no decision losses, which is something that I've been hearing more and more, just anecdotally, uh, no scientific measurement, but something that when I, over the years, I would say the last five years probably, when I would go to conferences, I would go to speak at sales kickoffs, uh, I would have conversations with commercial leaders, and I would ask them, what are the big problems right now? What are, you, what are your salespeople struggling with? And it felt like this was coming up more and more often uh, with, with sales leaders, that you know, that we're really struggling with the, the customers who go through the entire sales process and then end up ghosting us, if you will, and just kind of going radio silent. And, and we spent all this time and energy. We thought we had them moving forward, but then they just kind of just sort of end up in this graveyard of no decision or this wasteland. So why is that? And, and so this was something I'd been noodling about, um, my co-author, Ted McKenna, as well. Um, so if you fast forward to 2020, March of 2020, which I think is a time we all maybe don't remember fondly, uh, maybe the first couple of weeks were fun, but then after that, it became very unfun right? when that turned into two years of lockdown and, and uh, pandemic. I think um, we saw what was really a, a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to study sales in a new way. If you remember, uh, Moe, that sales went completely virtual overnight, right? So we 
it has it had been true that in most industries, Zoom was Zoom and Teams and WebEx were starting to consume more of the sales interactions, uh, and more of it was happening uh, virtually uh, with the customer. But the really important meetings still tended to happen face to face in the customer's office, the closing meetings, the critical consensus building meetings, the negotiations. Um, but in March of 2020, that all changed. And so uh, my co-author Ted and I, uh, Ted McKenna and I, were working at a conversation intelligence company you mentioned before uh, called Tether. Um, and we convinced the leadership team there to let us use Tether's technology um, to launch what we called back then the sales vaccine project. And we figured, hey, if scientists can figure out a way out of the pandemic, then we can figure out what's why we are losing so often to no decision. And so Ted and I worked with several dozen companies. We collected two and a half million recorded sales calls. We turned those um, that unstructured audio into unstructured text using a um, transcription engine. And then we used machine learning to bring structure and meaning to that data. And so the specific question we were looking at was, well, two questions I would say. One is, what causes a customer to make no decision, to do nothing? What, what, could, what could possess somebody to do such a thing? And then secondly, what do the best salespeople do to avoid that? Um, what is the playbook that they run uh, so that that, doesn't, that happens less frequently to them? Uh, and so that was, the, that was the, the journey we set out on. And then, um, uh, then, we, then the surprises started coming out of the data, <laughs> which I know we'll talk about. Yeah, and let's get into that because yeah. we're obviously going to talk about some of the findings. We're not going to talk about all of it. We can't do all of it justice. And quite frankly, I highly encourage people to get the book because it will change your perspective on how you're going to view some of those deals, especially those ghosting situations. Yeah. Um, so let, let's ask that other question I wanted to ask you, which was what, what surprised you the most in the findings? Yeah, so if I think about... Um, if we think about a typical sale, a sale moves through three phases at the highest level. Um, uh, the first stage is the customer, we engage the customer in their status quo. So sometimes that is that the customer has saw no need for a solution like ours. We're bringing a truly disruptive, unique, new solution to market. They never thought, knew they had a need for that. Uh, if I think back on our days at CEB, oftentimes we would sit down with um, CFOs, heads of R&D, heads of procurement, heads of sales and marketing, and uh, these executives were quite accustomed to hiring consulting firms, but they'd never thought about getting insight and tools and engagement through a membership, a subscription. That just had never, it's a totally different model. And um, so sometimes the status quo, again, is the customer has no idea they need your solution. It could also be that they, um, they do use your solution, but maybe they use it in a narrow sense. You want them to use it enterprise-wide. They only use it in a very narrow, uh, a narrow deployment. It could also be that they use a competitor solution. Um, so there's all different types of status quo that we engage our customer in. The first step in sales is always to get the customer to agree on a new way forward, to get them to agree with our vision, to part ways with the status quo, and to move forward with us and with our solution. And I would argue that challengers actually, and, and challenger customer are a story about how do we do that? How do we get the customer to agree to part ways with the status quo and agree to move forward with us as a vendor, as a supplier, uh, and challenger customer, how do we get the group to agree on that, right? Not just one individual, but the entire buying committee. Uh, but the final stage in the sale is we've got to get the customer from their intent to actually taking action, to actually buying something, right? Uh, and that is, in many respects, the hardest chasm to cross in sales. And, and I think this is where we found things often go sideways in sales, where we have those customers who seem like they're bought in, who seem like they're ready to move forward, and then things start to fall apart before our eyes. They the customer starts to wring their hands and get cold feet and backpedal and waffle and waver and straddle the fence. We all know the terms, right? But they, 
they start to they start to uh, uh, relitigate or um, uh, kind of back talk themselves out of decisions you thought they'd already made. Now, for a very very long time in sales, and I would argue for probably the past fifty years, every salesperson in the world has been told that there is only one reason that that happens, and the reason is that you failed to beat the customer status quo. And, and we know, and we know this from human psychology, that the status quo has a very powerful pull and, and uh, grip on us as human beings. We just, um, we are lazy. Uh, this, we are genetically engineered to cons uh, conserve energy and find the path of least resistance. And if change requires a lot of energy, we are predisposed to want to avoid that. Um, we also know that people, oftentimes customers will pass up on great opportunities that would clearly make them better off and instead stay the course and keep doing what they're doing today. Um, this happens all the time in sales. And so again, the 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 wisdom that's been passed on from leader to manager to rep for at least 50 years is if the customer gets cold feet, it's because you didn't beat the status quo. And so what we found in the data was that more than three quarters of salespeople will um, find that customer waffling and wavering and, and backpedaling and straddling the fence, and they will go back and hammer the status quo. And so they do it in one of three ways, actually. The first way is that they use the, the carrot approach. So they will go back and say, Moe, let me show you the platform again. Let me show you the product. You must have missed the part where I told you how fast it was and how, how uh, energy efficient it was and how much money it's going to save. Let, let me paint the rosy picture of how wonderful things will be if you buy our solution. The second approach I would call um, the stick approach, which is using fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So what we're trying to do in that moment is, is help the customer um, think about the cost of their inaction, right? Here's what's going to happen to your business if you do nothing. You cannot afford not to move forward. Remember, Mo, you told me you're losing ground to competitors. Remember, you told me you're losing uh, engagement with your employees or your customers. You have to solve this problem. Everyone else is gapping you in the, in the market. I create this burning platform and make you squirm a little bit, right? Give you no, no choice but to move forward. And then the third, the third technique we see, if, if that's a carrot and the stick, I call this one the disappearing carrot act, which is the 10% discount that's only good through the end of the quarter, right? Or, or uh, the, the uh, implementation or installation window that if you don't sign up now, you're going to have to wait six months to offer uh, the next opportunity to install the solution in your, in your business. So we tell people effectively, you haven't put the status quo to bed. And so none of that was actually surprising to us, but here was the big surprise is that Doing that is far more likely to increase the probability the customer will do nothing, not decrease it. It actually makes things worse, not better. There was an, uh, doing that led to an 84% probability that the customer would end up doing nothing. So in other words, this age old playbook that we've been taught for so long in sales is the key to getting the customer off the fence, to uh, deal with that customer who's, who um, is, has cold feet, um, actually uh, backfires more often than it works out. It actually makes things worse, not better. To be very clear here, salespeople are actually better off doing nothing with the customer who's wavering and waffling and talking themselves out of it than running that playbook that they've been taught to run for many, many years. So that was a huge surprise to us because again, it flies in the face of the conventional wisdom out there in, uh, in sales for many, many years. That's incredible. You know, let's let's see, we make sure we get those numbers right so that people yeah. listening and watching this really, this sinks in. The, the status quo, attacking the status quo actually, did you say reduces probability of it, turning them around reduces, by 84%? It reduces win rate probability by 84%. That's incredibly well, high. Going, taking that customer and doing one of those things that we talked about, like 
uh, reconvincing you of the, the the B state, right? What things will look like if you buy our solution. Um, trying to create the burning platform, dial up the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or hanging that like disappearing discount or implementation window in front of the customer and trying to effectively all those techniques are are kind of one and the same. They're all about um, trying to uh, dial up the FOMO, right? It's the fear yeah. of missing out. It is you are not going to capitalize on these wonderful benefits of our platform. You are not going to capitalize on an opportunity to fix your business and to remedy this problem that we have we have surfaced during our conversation, or even more pedestrian. You're just going to miss out on an opportunity to save some money because you're not buying it now and you're trying to kick the can down the road. It's all about dialing up the FOMO. Um, now, as you know, we'll, we'll talk about this. What we found was um, was surprising, though. If you if you want, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, it's in the book, but I'll tell you a quick story as to this was we, we've had a number of experiences like this in our research careers where we found kind of inconvenient stuff in the data. <laughs> this is one of those inconvenient findings because it was not what we were looking um, uh, to service. We were actually, to be totally candid, we were trying to study what the best way was to beat the status quo, not whether doing so was the right thing to do at all. And what we found, as I just shared with you, does call into question whether that's the right playbook to be executing at all. And so we were a bit stumped. We we tried to make the data go. We were working with our data science team at Tether. We tried to make that finding go away. Unfortunately, the more data we fed into the model, the more pronounced that that effect became. And so we just had to deal with it or shut the project down. And um, we had this moment of kind of consternation. And we we were called or we got an email from a company. There's a company that was participating in the study. They sent us, uh, you know, um, a few hundred thousand sales calls uh, to contribute to the sample. And uh, the sales leader, who we've known for many years, invited us to sit in on a pipeline review that she was hosting. And, and she knew this topic of the study was avoiding no decision losses. She said, why don't you and Ted come in and sit on this pipeline review? Maybe something will, will, will it'll spur some thinking on your part. Or maybe you just want to understand how we talk about no decision, because we've got deals every week in our pipeline review that we have to discuss. Do we continue putting time against these or do we, if you will, kill for cause and stop chasing them? So we, it was a fairly, I would say, mundane pipeline review, sounded like any other company's pipeline review until the very end. Um, one of our salespeople brought up for a review a deal that was probably about six months past its expiration date. So um, a deal that they the salesperson had been pursuing for their, their average sales cycle was like three months. It's now nine or 10 months into the sale and the customer still hasn't, they, they started to ghost the salesperson. They started to intermittently respond to emails with very curt kind of terse responses. They didn't, they're not showing up for the Zooms that were set up, things like that. So the writing was on the wall that this, this customer was heading into no decision wasteland. And so the conversation was, should we market as closed, lost, no decision in Salesforce, um, or should we keep pursuing it? Should we keep putting time and energy against this opportunity? Now, the salesperson thought that it should not be killed. He said, this is a great opportunity. It's a perfect fit for our solution. I think they're just busy with other priorities. I don't think we should, we should kill this opportunity. But eventually, um, he was overruled by the, the head of sales and said, we, you know, we just, guys, we just cannot afford to chase garbage trucks here, right? We can't, time is our scarce resource. But, you know, many of the conversations, Moid, I suspect you've had with your team over the years, right? We've, it's, at some point, it's painful, but you've got to cut bait um, and go on to better opportunities. And so they made that hard decision. But here was the interesting wrinkle in the story is that when they decided to kill the opportunity and market as closed, lost in, in Salesforce, um, the sales uh, leader asked the team and, and asked the salesperson in particular, said, let's see if we can learn something from this experience. Do you think, let me ask you this, 
DHE asked the salesperson, do you think that we, um, we lost because the customer preferred their status quo? Or do you think we lost because they were indecisive about changing it? And there was this moment, it was just absolute silence. And there were like 50 salespeople on this call. And the salesperson who was selling, whose deal this was jumps in and says, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Aren't those the same thing? And she said, no, 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 they're totally different. And then she proceeded to explain those two different types of no decision losses. And in that moment, we suddenly realized what, we're, what we'd been looking for and why we found what we did. So we went back to the data um, and we ran the analysis and here's what we found. We found that in action, no decision losses are actually born of two different causes. The one we are all familiar with is when the customer prefers their status quo. Either they don't, be, they don't believe what they do today is so bad, it's good enough. They don't believe that your solution is a more compelling alternative, or maybe they don't believe the change journey is really worth it, right? I've got, we've got other priorities. It's not, it's yes, this isn't great. Yes, your solution would be better, but it's not a top priority for us. That's any one of those reasons we would classify as a commitment to the status quo. But it turns out there's a second reason. And the second reason is not being committed to the status quo, but actually, as the sales leader said, being indecisive about changing it. Now, I'll grant your listeners, even when I say that, it probably sounds, those two things sound indistinguishable from one another. So let me double click for a moment on what it means to be indecisive about changing the status quo. We found that in our data, there were three things that caused customers to become indecisive. The first one is that they are unsure of what to pick. So quite literally, if we think about all the options we put in front of our customers, different contract lengths, enterprise-wide deployments versus narrow deployments, um, uh, premium versus versions versus standard versions, partner integrations, all the bells and whistles. At some point, the customer's got to pick what goes into the proposal, what goes into the configuration, and what are the things you're going to say no to. And choosing what you buy means choosing what you're not going to buy. And this is a customer, we call this evaluation problem. These are customers who are saying, um, maybe not in verbatim, but they're sending signals that they don't know what to pick. Because in a world where all the options look great, that's a customer who ends up doing nothing because they don't want to make a, a choice and have that end up being the wrong choice. The second source of indecision is a lack of information. So this is when the customer feels like they've not done enough research yet, that this is a big decision you're asking them to make. They're not as much of an expert as you are as a salesperson. And so uh, you know more about the solution than I do. So I need to be on a level playing play field. The old saying, buyer beware, right? It's the next white paper I read or the next webinar I attend or the next analyst I talk to that will show me all the things I need to know to be a savvy buyer. The last source of indecision is called outcome uncertainty. Outcome uncertainty is where the customer quite literally fears that they won't get what they're paying for. Not that you'll take their money and they'll get nothing, but rather that they'll get something, but it won't deliver the benefits that were projected. They may not get the cost savings. They may not get the top line growth. They may not fully mitigate the risk you're promising. They may not grab the market share as you've built, helped them build the business case around these lofty expectations. And they're sitting there thinking, if this doesn't come to pass, somebody is going to be called uh, to task for it. And it's actually going to be me because my name's on the DocuSign or my name's on the contract. So those are the three things that lead to indecision. Now, what I tell your listeners to think about is, or, or ask themselves is where in that picture, I don't know what to pick. I haven't done enough homework. I don't know if I'm going to get what I'm paying for. I have no assurance of success. Where is the status quo in that, in that set of fears? And the answer is it's nowhere. And so that is why you can easily have a customer who's, um, who's committed to leaving their status quo, is actually fully committed to moving forward with you and your company and your solution. They want to do business. 
business with you, they want to buy from you, but nevertheless become indecisive and fearful of making a mistake that they won't, they have not done enough research. They picked the wrong configuration and they got no assurance of success, no guarantee that they'll, they'll see the ROI on this investment. And so if I were to summarize what I'd say is um, uh, two things. First of all, when we run the math, what we find is that only 44% of no decision losses are because you failed to beat the status quo. 56% of the time, it's because the customer is actually indecisive about changing it, but in fact, fully committed to departing from the status quo. So when we go back to that customer who's actually fully bought in on leaving the status quo, and we try to dial up the FUD or dangle the disappearing discount in front of them or uh, talk up the rosy projections, that customer's already convinced of all those things. They're worried about something else. And that is why it actually, what we're doing is we're using fear tactics to sell to somebody who's already afraid. They're already scared. And so the summary I would, I would give your listeners is this, that in sales, we need two playbooks. Well, yes, we've got to beat the status quo. We've got to do that. Whether you use Challenger to do that, you use Medic to do that. There are many great approaches to do that. I'm partial to Challenger for obvious reasons, but there are lots of great approaches to beat the status quo. And you've got to do that because if the customer is wedded to their status quo, you won't sell anything. But once the customer parts ways intellectually with the status quo, they start worrying about, they stop worrying about missing out. What they start worrying about is messing up. So it's not about dialing up the FOMO, it's about dialing down the FOMO, the fear of messing up. And that is what high performers have figured out, is that there's a time and a place to dial up the FOMO and a time and a place to dial down the FOMO. You've got to mitigate the risk for the customer and instill the confidence or at least the self-efficacy so that they feel like, I picked the, exactly the right configuration for me. I made a great choice. I'm not second guessing this choice. It's a brilliant choice. Um, I've done tons of research or I'm working with a salesperson who's an expert who's guiding me to be savvy enough buyer. And I've got some assurance here. I know that this supplier, this salesperson is not going to make me look like a fool. I'm going to look like a hero, in fact. And so that is a customer who doesn't get stuck in the land of indecision and ends up crossing that, uh, that difficult chasm. There's so much there that you shared, but there was, I, I mean, you know, I'm not going to summarize all that. There was a lot there. And quite frankly, this is recorded. People can go back to it. And I really encourage them to, because I mean, you've basically dissected and given incredible insights that can help, I think, majority of salespeople out there and figuring out why they're seeing some of this ghosting. Um, but there was one element that you talked about that I found particularly interesting personally for me. I've had the privilege of interviewing, I think we've just completed interviewing uh, my 428th B2B buyer, just oh, to wow. uncover <laughs> kind of what's what's going on. Some of it yeah. formal, some of it informal, right? Sure. But, but the, the thing that surprised me in my findings and my questions and perspective was that the most prevalent reason why someone made a decision wasn't about ROI, it wasn't about this is a better opportunity or this, you know, it was it was for one main reason, which was I can place my hard earned reputation in this mm -hmm. person's hands. Yeah. I, I won't fear losing my reputation and my job and my income and my very identity because yeah. I'm going to select this person or this vendor. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a form of loss aversion, which you talk about quite a lot yes. in the book. And and um, when you understand that. It absolutely makes sense. You can't tackle fear with fear because they're coming from a place of fear. They need certainty, yeah. right, with that. Yeah. Um, not, let's dial up the fear even more because you're basically dialing up. So there's a point where 
as you've just said, you know, there's a point where you've logically told them about status quo. Now, I've always felt status quo was an effect, not a cause, in a lot mm -hmm. of respects. Interesting. Okay. But the 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 but what you shared there was was so powerful because it is a form of loss aversion. It's it's down to the emotions. Yeah. And so in this particular book, you talk a lot about the social sciences and, and yes. you, and I'm, I'm curious at what point did you realize, or what, at what point did you connect your findings with heuristics and social sciences? Yeah, great. Uh, really great question. Um, so I, I will say back to your, your earlier point, um, uh, as, as my last answer revealed, uh, summarizing is not my forte. So I, <laughs> I will encourage everyone to go hit rewind if you want to catch, uh, catch everything I said. And of course, there's a lot more in the book. But I think this is such an interesting um, question. I think what we stumbled upon, and, and I can, can I share, um, let me share one other story, because I was in, we were talking Please. before we started recording, we were in San Francisco last week for the Dreamforce event, and we did, the, that was coincided with the book launch, so we had a number of launch events, and I was presenting um, uh, this content to an audience of uh, sales leaders, and a sales leader from a software company that everyone on the, everyone listening to the show would know very well, so I won't mention them came up to me afterwards and she said, I some, she said, we do this all the time. We always try to dial up the FOMO. We always try to dial up the FUD, the, you know, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the 10% discount, the, the disappearing implementation window. Um, we always do that. And it suddenly occurred to me that in a contest between uh, losing out on a 10% discount and losing your job, it turns out the customer cares more about losing their job, right? And, and I was like, yes, that's a brilliant way to put it. Actually, that turned into a slide in my keynote. I have a 10% discount, your job. And so with a, you know, the, the greater that side. And, but you've, you've hit on something really important here, Amoid. And this is not really something we did in the prior books, as you know very well, because you know that research and you're part of that research at CEB. Um, we, we actually did a lot more um, reading of the social sciences uh, we probably consumed, I don't know, 30 or 40 years of like cognitive psychology and behavioral economics research. And it was, it helped illuminate or explain what we were finding because the answers are not about customer behavior. They're actually not, not even about sales. It's just about the way human beings are wired. You know, you talked about, I'll give an example. So you talked about loss aversion. And this is uh, the, the idea from uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Seversky, prospect theory, this idea that, you know, you and I and everyone else we are more wired to avoid loss than we are to maximize gain. But what's interesting about that is I think even if most salespeople didn't know about, didn't know who Kahneman and Sversky were, never read Thinking Fast and Slow, doesn't follow who the Nobel Prize winners are in economics, they would at least know that that is why they try to create the burning platform. That's why you dial, but that's why you hang the disappearing discount uh, window in front of the customer is because you know the customer doesn't want to lose. Everybody hates to lose. But as we delve deeper into the research, what we also learned was this, is that while that is true, that we all are wired to avoid loss, it turns out there are actually two types of loss out there. We have errors of commission and errors of omission. Let's start with an error of omission. An error of, of omission is a loss you experience by doing nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, so a bad, thing a bad thing results from your inaction. A, an error of commission is when a bad thing results because of something you did that you did something wrong and it resulted in a bad outcome. Now, through decades of, of research, um, what social scientists have found is that even if the loss is exactly the same, the error of commission dwarfs the error of omission. Absolutely. We are yep. much more comfortable with missing out than we are with messing up. Nobody wants to mess up. Now think about, this is so interesting. 
think about the time that we're in right now. And you mentioned this at the beginning of the show, and I think you're quite right. Um, I literally could see the indecision needle moving last week when I was in San Francisco talking to companies, telling us they've seen their no decision loss rate slowly tick up like an engine starting to run hot. And they, they see it, these deals slipping through their fingers. Customers are kicking the can down the road. Why? Because there's so much scrutiny, even on moderate uh, purchase decisions right now. Cash is king. This is a, a, a period we're in where every purchase decision is getting heavily scrutinized. And in that environment, the customer literally is thinking, I could just do nothing and maintain the status quo. And by the way, nobody ever got fired for maintaining the status quo. The status quo has many mothers and fathers in an organization, and there's a lot of people to blame for it. Uh, but while people don't get fired for maintaining the status quo, they do get fired for trying to change it and it not working out. And that is the error of commission. It's something called the omission bias. We are biased towards inaction over action. And it's because nobody wants to be personally responsible for, for something going wrong. Worst case scenario, you could lose your job. You know, best case scenario, you look like a fool or it's a loss of reputation. And, and you put it really well, you know, in these interviews with your customer or with the customers you've been talking to, that, that fear they have actually of reputational risk, you know, that they will have put their name against a decision, which is uh, significant, right? And if it doesn't work out, that follows them around like a, you know, it, I don't even know what the right analogy is. But a bad smell, them. basically. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. But yeah, we we so we we did a lot of research around why this was the even the finding I mentioned to you before about where indecision comes from, uh, valuation problems, lack of information, outcome uncertainty. We found this in our data of studying two and a half million sales calls. But it turns out that this is also true of uh, university students trying to pick what courses to take. And there's there's plenty of social science. Uh, to 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 suggest that there are three things that people become indecisive about, and it is those three things. I don't know what to pick. I don't have enough information. I I don't know if I'm going to get the return I expect from this decision. Those are the three causes, which we then took and then ran against our data and found, in fact, with business you know business to business customers, it's exactly the same. So again, this was really informed heavily by the social science because. You know, this is a human thing. And I'll, I'll share with you one last idea here is that in our sample two and a half million sales calls, we had very complex sales. We also had some pretty transactional sales, more inside sales. Think about not sales that take weeks and months and maybe years to consummate, but sales that are that start and end within the span of a one hour phone call. Um, and so we had plenty of those those calls in there, too. And, you know, what's interesting is there was no difference in what we saw worked in either scenario. It's not a function of whether you sell a million dollar complex solution or whether you sell a $1,000 product or simple you know, subscription or something like that. These are human problems. Uh, this, this, this problem of uh, the omission bias and wanting to avoid making mistakes is very much a human problem. I completely agree. And I think we forget that, right? And this has been happening yeah. for quite, quite a long time now. We forget that actually, you know, it's human beings that are making these decisions, not a brand. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when you talked about it and challenge a customer, um, you know, we talk about dysfunctions in the group. I mean, that that's basically group, group think where you yeah. will make a decision um, that's not necessarily in interest of the actual project, but it's in the interest of limiting any friction um, or finding some common ground. So that, you know, I, I'm really glad that you shared that. There is one point that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. Because um, I can see this being misinterpreted 
in some ways like challenger was unfortunately misinterpreted um and that was the the third element of the jolt effect which was the acronym um which is limiting the exploration which is essentially um you know where buyers will ask sellers for more information more information more information and us as sellers we're so only only more happy to oblige because we think that's a buying signal we think if we give them more information but there's a point just like a lot of things where actually the there's a there's diminishing returns but yeah. but I can personally see, and you talk about how there are some savvy salespeople and high performers that know when to limit that information. Now I can see this being misinterpreted and incorrectly applied um, oh, <laughs> on a spectrum. So could you share more about that third behavior? Because I think when people yeah. start to read the book, they would really benefit from this extra perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And you've you've hit the nail on the head. That is of the four behaviors, which if it's if it's all right, let me I'll just recap quickly for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. The four so JOLT is as Moeed mentioned is an acronym. Oh, we like it because it's it's sticky and memorable, but it also speaks to what's happening, right? We're trying to jolt our customer out of their stuck, indecisive state and get them from I want this to I bought this, from intent to action. Um, the four behaviors are these. So J is judging the level of indecision. How do we because remember these are in many, in many respects, personal fears. If you ask your customers if they were decisive people, 100% of them will say yes. And in fact, what we found was that in 87% of the opportunities we studied, the sales conversations we studied, we had customers with either moderate or high levels of indecision. So we need as salespeople to be able to detect this. Um, and so we talk about the techniques that a salesperson can use to do that because we've got to know what is the playbook we need to execute to get the customer from intent to action? We've also got to know how to forecast that opportunity. And worst case scenario, we've got to know whether this is a, a, a fool's errand, right? Is this an opportunity we should actually spend our valuable time against, or is it too far gone, too indecisive? So that's a J. So the O is about offering a recommendation. So as salespeople, we love to put lots of options in front of our customers, but there's you can't buy a concept, but you, you need to buy a proposal and you've got to choose Again, what not to buy? What what comes out of the shopping cart? What what do you say no to? What doors do you close? And uh, that can be really hard for customers. So we need to make a recommendation to go from a lot of options down to a few options to get the customer to actually make a decision. Um, the L is limiting the exploration. We'll come back to that one because that's where your question was. The T is taking risk off the table. Um, remember that outcome uncertainty. The customer's fearful. They may not get the returns you're promising. So how do we get them comfortable that you've got their back, that they're going to see, they're going to look like a hero, not like a fool, that they're going to see, they're going to see the benefits that were promised. So if we go back to the L, limiting the exploration, you, you described the problem very well. And I think you're quite right that, that salespeople can take this the wrong way. So there's two things I know. Uh, one is that Jedi, Jedi mind tricks don't work in sales. So you can't sell the customer. You don't need to read the Gardner Magic Quadrant Report. Like you don't, you don't actually need to do any research of your own. Like that's... That's a recipe for a customer who does a lot of research on their own, right? Um, the other thing I know is that you can't just say no to the customer, right? You have to, in res- in many respects, I would say you have to earn the right to do that. Now, how do we do it? I, th- I think there's um, an overused term in sales, which I think you and I have heard many for many, many years, which is you need to be a trusted advisor. But I think many leaders and managers have never dis- told their sellers what it means to be a trusted advisor. So if we break it down, there's the trust side, and then there's the, uh, the you have to be a position to advise the customer. On the trust side, um, when we go into a sales conversation, we've got to understand that we're actually not starting at zero. We're actually starting in, in a negative territory. And the reason is because many of our customers carry the baggage of having been oversold in the past. 
you know, they have a perception that our job as a salesperson is to sell them more than they need, to hide the bad information, not share all the things that don't work in our solution. We're not gonna introduce them to the reference customers who actually hate us, right? Uh, those, so the customer knows this. They know that we are, we are uh, wired to sell them more than they need. We are incentivized to do it. We are going to hide the dirty laundry, all these things. So there are specific moments we found in our analysis where high performers will actually say and do things to bridge that trust gap. So they will actually tell the customer, you know, uh, Moeed, I, I know you want to take this enterprise wide, but in fact, I think I don't want to be a good steward of your money. I'd love to sell you a million dollar solution, but I actually think you can save a little bit of money. We can deploy it a bit more narrowly, and then we can expand down the road. Or, you know, I know you're interested in the premium version of our solution, but I think the basic version would be just fine for your needs. Or even pointing out um, places where your competitor is better than you are uh, in the area that the customer is articulating a need for. So these are moments that instill for the customer the confidence that this person is not trying to oversell me and not trying to hide the ball. They're actually trying to get me to a good decision. And, and they're trying to be a good steward of my budget, my time, and my resources. The second thing we have to do is be in a position to advise the customer. So what does that mean in sales? Well, what we found was uh, a couple of things. The first is that salespeople, good salespeople, um, position themselves as subject matter experts around their product or their solution. So quite literally, what that means is they carry more of the load themselves talking about the product, the ins and outs of the product. They do their own demos more often. They don't bring the clown car of, of subject matter experts, the engineers, the CS managers, the executive team sponsors onto the every single sales call. And the last thing they'll do is something like this, where I say, uh, hey, Mr. or Ms. Customer, I know you had a question about our product. I brought Moeed, he's our chief product officer. Moeed, take it away. Why? Because Moeed hates that because he's not the sales guy. I am, right? That's the first reason. The other reason is high performers know when you do that, you get delegated down to the person you sound like. So you are perceived in that moment as nothing more than a glorified calendar, calendaring person whose only benefit is to get people like Moeed on the call, but I offer no value myself. And if the customer perceives that you don't know as much more than they do about this solution or this market or this technology, that's a customer who will continue to do their own research. We also saw, the second thing we saw was that um, gifted salespeople will uh, uh, look for signs of implicit non-acceptance. So what I mean by that is they will um, listen for indicators in calls that customers aren't tracking with them and are not entirely with them. So it might be me asking you, you, you raise an objection, I address the objection, I say, Moe, did I fully address your, issue, your question? It's the difference between you saying, absolutely, and you saying, I guess so. Now, those two things may both sound like a yes to an average performer, but to a high performer, they're quite different. They will stop the conversation and say, forgive me for asking, but it sounds like maybe I didn't fully address your concern, or maybe you're still feeling a little uh, anxious about this. That's okay. A lot of customers do feel some anxiety about this. Let's talk about it. You've got to get that fear on the table so that it can be dealt with and managed, right? Um, you also, you see high performers um, anticipating objections. So introducing objections before the customers even stated them. That tells the customer, again, you are a trustworthy advisor, somebody who is who's introducing things I need to think about, but also you make you, you show me, you demonstrate to me that you've sold this to people just like me before. You know what's going through my head, you know my concerns, you know my objections, you're one step ahead of me on my learning journey. Only when you do all those things do you earn the right to say no, and you don't even say no. What you do is instead have some radical candor with your customer, which is an empathetic approach, which is all about 
um, you know, Moeed, I know you want to do another demo. I know you want to do another reference call or do another proof of concept trial in another part of the business. But I've got to be honest, I don't want to waste your time or ours. My only goal here is to get you to the right decision, whether that's buying our solution, buying our competitor solution, or just doing nothing, right? So let's make sure we make get to that decision. But I don't think that next step that you've proposed is going to advance you to that final decision. So let's talk about what you're thinking, you know, what you're worried about. Let's let's have a frank conversation. There may be other ways to get you the data and the information you seek. So, so again, it is absolutely not. No, <laughs> that is going to backfire dramatically. And you're quite right to expect that salespeople will misinterpret that and probably go and do that. Um, but that is not at all what's intended. So, yeah, I mean, there, there was so much in there and there was elements there that I want to extract because for me personally, and this is kind of my perspective, but I absolutely encourage people again to read the book and to go into the detail there. But um, the, the last person I interviewed, that 428th buyer was a product director who, who was in charge of purchasing large amounts of technology involved in their product development, their product strategy, whatever it might be. And there was something that he said that was very interesting, which was those salespeople that he trusted more were those that didn't hide or omit where they were strong or where their competitors were strong. Yeah. They were they were the salespeople that were saying, look, I'm going to be candid with you. Where we are strong is here. Where our competitors are strong is here. And where competitor X or B might be as strong as here. You know, they yeah. were they were very candid about that. And that's because the, the buyer was saying, look, I've done my homework. Right. Sure. So yeah. so if they if they're trying to hide that, then I can't trust them anymore. And you spoke right. a lot about that, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the other thing that you said there, which which was really good to hear is, you know, we're trying to get to the heart of, well, what's go actually going on here? You know, yes. What's driving that? You know, Chris Voss talks about the different types of yeses. Right. And, you know, th there are three different types of yeses here. And you've alluded to that. Right. So, you know, if someone's saying, yeah, I think so. Well, it's it's a salesperson that's not taking things on the surface level. They're kind of digging in further and saying, well, hang on a second, there's, there's a bit of reservation here. Let me address that reservation. Yeah. Let me have the courage to do so. Yeah. And then the other part that you talked about, which was the trust element. Um, very hard. That, well, not very hard. It's not really been discussed very much. People talk about trusted advisors, but I've seen precious few codification of what that really is. Um, yeah, or at least, right. or at least that, at least that being taught in a way um, that is actually actionable. So, so definitely something that I think was valuable for people to take away uh, in that. Um, there, a couple. I know we're short on time, so there are a couple of questions I, I definitely do want to sure. get out there. If you, if you, if you're good on time, one of them yeah, yeah. is uh, we saw this in Challenger, um, uh, and actually you see this in any any other kind of training program that's being brought in, which is. Um, a lot of the time, the bottleneck, there, there are a few bottlenecks, but one of them are the sales managers themselves. Of course, and yeah. the sales managers either haven't been through the training program or have, but under times of stress, they revert back to what they're familiar with. And that's very biological, right? Um, how would you recommend sales managers kind of support their reps when applying the jolt effect? Is it a question of the fact that they kind of need to read the book and understand it, or is there more to it? I, th I think that's part of it. And I think it's, um, you know, you've articulated something, uh, Moe, that's, I think, very, it's core to who we are, right? We tend to revert back to what worked in the past or to those, you know, so it's, it's the reptilian brain, right? And we go back to like those knee-jerk reactions. And I think in sales, uh, one of the knee-jerk reactions, because we've been taught to do this for so many years, um, and from time to time, it certainly has worked, is uh, put the pressure on the customer, 
scare them into action, help them realize the cost of their inaction, dial up the FOMO. It's so, it, that is, I think, the reflexive knee-jerk reaction uh, for sales managers. And it can be quite frustrating like when your salesperson is working on an opportunity that's just languishing. It's just neither, it's not making forward progress and you're, you're shy of your number and the salesperson is dragging the team down and you're not going to get, it can be, it can feel like the right thing to do to just say, let's just, let's put the full court press on them. Let's dangle that discount in front of them. Tell them they're not going to get it if they don't buy this quarter. Uh, point out that we're working with their competitors. Show them the ROI projection again. You know, these, this can be the natural inclination. So I think it is about being aware of what our natural inclinations are. Um, but I also think part of it is when, when it comes to working with salespeople, and we talked about this in Challenger as well, is um, it's about coaching. I mean, uh, it being not, and I think the problem that we see over and over again, and I think you've seen this in spades in your career, is that most sales managers are actually quite bad at coaching and they confuse deal inspection and performance management with, with coaching. There is a role for the sales manager to play, of course, on deal inspection and performance management. That is part of being a manager of people. But there's a critical role the sales leader plays, the sales manager plays around coaching. That is not about a deal or an opportunity or activities. That is about uh, working on the behaviors I know will make you more successful as a salesperson. And it's about creating safe zones of practice and having those conversations um, and in uh, making it okay to fail and try things that don't work out. And, and, uh, and we learn from those mistakes and be able to review them in a non-critical kind of way. Again, sales managers are, are not good at this. Uh, uh, many of them are uh, never taught to do it effectively. It doesn't mean they can't be taught to do it. It just means the companies haven't invested in, in that skill development. I think oftentimes companies say, we're just going to take this book or this idea, whether it's Challenger or Jolt Effect or anything else, and just train all the reps and we're going to jump over the managers. But what they fail to appreciate is the only way that will stick is if the managers are not only bought in, but know how to coach to those new behaviors. And it doesn't matter, again, whether it's Challenger or Jolt, a, a skill, or if it's simply um, uh, using a new sales pitch deck or a new sales message, or driving adoption of a new compensation plan, or driving usage of a new uh, tool uh, like a CRM platform or conversation intelligence tool. It can be any number of things. This stuff lives and dies by the sales manager's ability to coach uh, around those things and get those new behaviors to stick. Yeah, and, and there's, there's plenty of data out there. And I, I, know, it's, I know it's tough for sales yeah. for sales managers. A lot of them aren't taught how to do that. Yeah. Um, and secondly, when pressure is high, they, they kind of forego those coaching sessions in, in, yeah. in favor of pipeline and deal reviews. But actually, that's just putting a Band-Aid on a situation that's just an ever-expanding wound. Um, so that, that, yeah, that was really insightful that you shared that. I, I mean, we're, we're at time. I, I wish we had more time. There's so much, so much we could have talked about, but I definitely encourage people to get the book because it's, it's, it's kind of the, the, the stats, the research is solid. Um, you know, we, we are talking about things that quite frankly are very visceral and very human, very emotional. Um, it's an area that a lot of salespeople really struggle with. I think we as yeah. people, professionals actually struggle with that because it's very yeah. hard to measure. And yet that is the thing that drives behavior more than anything. I mean, I can talk about yes. the neuroscience behind that and the, the anatomy of the brain, but we don't have to, right? It, you know, other people can look at some of the content I put out there, but there is biology behind that. And oftentimes we That's as right. salespeople are trained to act in con incongruently towards the buyer's biology. So love yeah. the book. Um, I got to ask this question. Um, sure. And I ask this of all, all our guests when they come on the show, you've been asked this before as well. So, so this hopefully isn't new. Um, which 
three books would you recommend our viewers and listeners should read? Or alternatively, you might say, here are the three people that are very knowledgeable in this space that you should definitely follow. And it doesn't have to be sales specifically. It could be something wider or it could be in the realm of business, et cetera. But what would your answer yeah. be? So, I, yeah, I may give a, a hybrid answer because I don't remember what I said last time, but I <laughs> was with you, but I'll give a hybrid answer. So um, one book to go read. I um, really liked uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, and I think it gets into, you know, the a lot of what we've been talking about today and, and the science behind why people sometimes seemingly illogical reason people do the things that they do. Uh, but there's lots of other books in that vein. Uh, Predictably Irrational uh, is another good one from Dan Ariely. Um, but but that would be say go go pick up a book on um, on uh, behavioral economics and and human psychology, um, and I think you'll learn quite a bit about how to be a better salesperson. It's not a sales book, but but learning how people operate uh, will make you a better salesperson. One person to follow, I think um, I would go follow uh, Dave Brock. Um, for those who don't follow Dave, he's a fantastic uh, thought leader out in the sales space. I just I read everything he writes. Um, a lot of thought provoking stuff he puts out there. Um, he's been a sales leader. He runs a consulting firm right now. He's a voracious reader. He was actually an advisor to us on this book. Um, uh, and so we uh, we can't thank him enough for that. And he really pushed our thinking. So uh, I would follow Dave Brock. He's He runs a firm called Partners in Excellence, which I think is a um, great outfit. And Dave, again, puts out some great content. So sign up for his blog, uh, check out his content on LinkedIn. Um, and then let me think. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of, a, I, so I gave a book to read. I gave a, um, I think you, I'll give one more book. How about that? Um, one of the other books I really um, enjoy, which again, has nothing to do with sales, but I think, boy, um, you know, at CEB, this was kind of like the Bible for us when it came to storytelling and how do you create sticky resonant ideas was uh, Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. I, I love that book. I, I've got a copy right here on my shelf. I, it's my go-to when I work on things like, so if you think about some of these ideas, which people have said, oh, I really like that. It's, it's sticky. Like in Challenger, we talked about the difference between leading with your solution and leading to your solution. Um, in this book, we talk about the FOMO versus the FOMU, the fear of missing out versus the fear of messing up. Like the reason we do stuff like that is because our goal as writers and researchers is to imprint these ideas on the reader or the consumer's mind, right? So it stays with them. It doesn't go in one ear and out the other. And there's a specific art and science to getting that right. And Chip and Dan Heath wrote the book on it quite literally called Made to Stick. So definitely check that out. Again, it will make you a better salesperson, make you a better marketer, make you a better product designer, make you a better uh, podcast interviewee, <laughs> things, all, all these great things. So Yeah, they were, those were great recommendations. Thankfully, thankfully I have and follow those the, the individual yeah. you mentioned and those books. Um, and I would absolutely, uh, you know, second that. They're definitely books that I think if you want to actually move away from convention and therefore your performance would be disproportionately higher than others, then those are the kind of books that you should absolutely yeah. be reading. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming on the show. How can our viewers and listeners... Uh, fight, um, connect with you, learn more about you, where are the best places to do sure. so? Sure. Yeah, I, I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. So if you heard me on uh, the program, tell me you heard me on Moe's show and you'd like to connect and continue the conversation, let's be connected and, and be a part of my network. I'd love to be a part of yours. And then if you want to learn more about the Jolt Effect and, and ways you can bring some of these insights and and uh, the, you know upskill your sales team around these Jolt skills, come visit us at jolteffect.com. And there's a ton of 
free content on there and lots of information about how to continue the journey beyond the book. Matt, thank you for taking time and coming on the show. A wealth of information and advice here that I think would just blow a lot of people's mind. It certainly did. And I really encourage people personally to, you know, this is not a personal like endorsement. Matt does not pay me for this at all. This is my personal (laughs) recommendation, my professional recommendation. Definitely get the book. Um, There's just so much in there that I think people really need to learn. So uh, thank you again, Matt, uh, for joining us on the show. Great to be with you, and I look forward to our next conversation. Great. So, and if any, uh, this is Moed Amin signing out from the Persuasion Lab episode. Uh, if you are interested in learning more around the neuroscience and behavioral psychology behind why and how your buyers make decisions, uh, do check me out and uh, reach out to me. Happy to have a discussion with you. Link in the show notes below. But until the next episode, thank you, everyone.